Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor and my blessing to be in dialogue with Dr. Chris Murray. He is a senior analyst and associate editor at Defense Report. We will be discussing his newly published and edited volume, Unknown Conflicts of the Second World War, Forgotten Fronts, published in New York by Routledge, 2019. Chris, it's my honor to be in dialogue with you today. Oh, pleasure to, to, to talk with you. I really appreciate the invitation. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Uh, sure. So I'm, I'm Canadian. I grew up in, in Southern Ontario, uh, first in suburbia and then later in, in a more rural area. Uh, I'm not very... Uh, exciting person. I'm not really sure what to say about myself. I, uh, I can't really think of a particular event that put me here. Just always really enjoyed the past. In my mind, true stories have always been better than fiction. Um, it, uh, drove me into anthropology and in my undergrad, which you know, I thought it was going to be Indiana Jones, but, <laughs> I, I got really turned on to the uh, cultural anthro and with, with it or by extension history. And that sort of drew me into towards the stuff I study today, um, started to look at, uh, genocide and second world war and irregular conflicts. And, uh, one thing led to another, but, uh, my undergrad, I did at Lakehead and Thunder Bay, and that really helped give me an appreciation for some of the bottom up history that I'd been missing. So that was, a, I guess, a formative experience. Uh, after graduating, I lived with my uncle Mike down in Boston for a little while, and he was a second world war vet. And, uh, I'm sure that that had a pretty significant influence on on how I viewed things, and that's how I ended up at RMC, the Royal Military College of Canada, and studying the, what I do today. What inspired you to take on this project? What message do you hope to convey to readers in this volume? Well, I was working on what I'd come to realize was a, a rather poorly understood and largely neglected part of the war in Europe. The literature was it's pretty dated. It was remained divided on many points, but f- for whatever reason, it was treated as though it was already settled and done with. And it's something I encountered a lot. Uh, there's also a large number of archival sources that had been opened up uh, only after the bulk of the literature had been published. So, as I dug into it, being where I am, coming from it with the the lens of regular conflicts and the cultural anthropology, I realized how many layers there were and how much complexity there was. Uh, Anthony Eden talked about the Balkans. He said, you know, to he was talking about McLean. Well, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> he, he was talking about how the Balkans aren't black and white. They're the more common color is gray, and that's something that sort of really resonated with me, uh, and came more naturally to me with the anthro background. But I discovered that even with a very brief resurveying of the archives from this perspective, it allowed for a new view of events that went a long way towards grappling with some of these long-standing debates. And I also saw the value it's lessons held for contemporary issues, like 
the conflict in Afghanistan that was going on while I was in school. Uh, you know, Yugoslavia being on the periphery of Europe and the Middle East under Middle East command, it just started to make me think long and hard about other parts of the globe that I, at the time, already pretty well-informed historian uh, had just never really seen much discussion on. And so I started to think maybe this would be an idea. What are the primary themes in this book? What story or stories does this book tell? Well, there's a lot that someone could probably take away depending on the lens by which they approach the subject, which is I think, part of the charm of the book. I think it shows just how far the reach of the war was and even far from the main theaters, battlefields, the centers of gravity, the impacts were felt in pretty profound and complex ways. Uh, this brings us to, you know, a point that's always really stuck with me made by, I think the first time I heard it was Anthony Beaver. And he was, if I can paraphrase, it was about how the Second World War is really more a mosaic of overlapping conflict. And uh, this is something we see come up quite a lot within the Forgotten Fronts narrative, where in more complex local struggles were playing out within the larger complex of the war. That's, I say, ultimate, I would say that's ultimately the over, overarching storyline that we've attempted to get across. How can this volume contribute to the pedagogy of World War II in high school and university classrooms? What suggestions do you have for the inclusion of forgotten conflicts and unknown fronts in curricula on the Second World War? I think or at least hope that this book can actually offer quite a lot. There are a number of uh, compelling stories out there which tie the war together and they make sense of not only the war itself, but of these places that lay, shall we say, in between the conventionally viewed centers of gravity. Uh, they're really exciting stories that capture the attention, imagination of younger scholars in particular. I, I know from my experience at university, that seems to be where people are starting to move. Uh, it's it's a fresh window into the war, and as I said, it adds a lot of depth. There's 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 these numerous aha moments that come from reading the spaces in between and seeing how things tie together that present, if nothing else, valuable lessons in how we approach and think about things. So my my greatest hope is the book helps in some small way to encourage, excuse me, to encourage more of the like and, and greater focus on expanding our understanding of these fields of study. I think we should not only be willing, but excited to embrace complexity and unsatisfactorily ambiguous results. Uh, my suggestion then, if we can call it that, would be to encourage more focus on those spaces in between and using these stories to help contextualize those areas that are, are familiar to us, uh, which are often used as touchstones in navigating the subject and, and particularly on courses on the subject. This isn't you know, about replacing one with the other, but more about finding new vehicles to getting across that terrain. And I, I hope that on this point, the book has gone some way towards aiding in that journey, or at least pointed towards a direction that I hope future Second World War research will pursue more readily. How does your study advance our understanding of Axis strategy during the Second World War? Hmm. Well, not unlike the Allies, we come to see that the Axis were, were confronted with a number of independent factions, third-party players, if you will, with their own agendas, who were, were happy to use the Axis and the Axis them, but who were certainly no friend. And this played into how the Axis approached 
their decisions and the directions they took toward achieving their goals. Uh, one of the most rewarding and complex case studies that helps offer some insight to this would be Henry's chapter on Finnish position caught between the Axis and the Soviets and then later the Allies. Uh, we see that the Axis were often confronted with considerable resistance, which constrained their chosen policy course that you know they, they had very little ability to do anything about. Uh, with regards to Italy, uh, Italy uh, Federico discusses another interesting consideration, which emerges in the role that fascist ideology played in crafting objectives and strategy, but also in shaping the reality that the Axis strategy was compelled to contend with. Um, much like the Allies, there is a considerable amount of having to react to changing situations as they were compelled to do in you know Yugoslavia, my area of study, after Regent Prince Paul's adherence to the Tripartite Pact, which uh, precipitated a, a popular anti-Axis coup d'etat, which resulted in the Axis invasion of the Balkans, something that I think that they were hoping to, to likely not have to do, which comes, I suppose what comes out of all this is that Axis strategy was driven by and aided by, but also constrained by ideological motivations as much as practical ones. What does your study teach us about the diplomatic history of the Second World War? What do the conflicts examined here teach us about diplomacy, diplomats, ambassadors and the roles of foreign ministries during World War II. I would I would say not nearly enough. What what some chapters might help with is is highlighting the sheer vastness of the subject and the depth of its important uh, importance. Don't misunderstand me. The, there has been voluminous voluminous studies dedicated to the diplomatic history of the Second World War. Uh, all we've done is add a very small weight in a very small way to that massive bookshelf uh, on the subject. Uh, what this volume teaches us, I would hope, um, and you can call it teaching us uh, on this front is, I don't know that it's really new and unique, but certainly it's a reminder of just how vast and complex it all was. We're talking about thousands of diplomats spread across the globe, far from comfort and home, years at a time, tense, dangerous situations, navigating incredibly complex interwoven discussions. In the case of Yugoslavia, I read the high-level diplomatic dispatches going back and forth, and at some moments it's it's more than hourly, uh, as was in the case in the period leading up to Prince Paul's signing of the Tripartite Pact. And one wonders how individuals such as, as Eden, for example, managed to do that while also doing it in dozens of other places simultaneously. The number of, of moving parts uh, and conversations that are occurring simultaneously, which all impacted upon each other, sometimes quite directly, but in other cases, in very un, far off and unforeseen ways, it, it's really quite astounding when one steps back and tries to, you know, for example, as I have with the British government, try to appreciate how that massive machine, um, a massive machine like that organized itself and managed to function and function well enough to process and make sense of, of these efforts. Um, I would hope that comes across a little bit in the pages, but I rest at ease because if we failed in any way, uh, it, it's just such a simple, uh, such a critical part of any and every story that it, it it's it'll be covered again by mm -hmm. lots of other folks. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, what it teaches us is just how massive that area is, and it's it's one that I think sometimes gets brushed over in some of the the more superficial studies but uh, mm -hmm. it, it's 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 absolutely core and critical to to, to understanding the, these events 
How does your study advance our understanding of Allied decision-making during World War II? Uh, so I think it helps to hint at the vastness on com and complexity of their pursuits. This is something I've I've already hit and hinted at with some of the other answers. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it the vastness on complexity of their pursuits and the challenges is presented to decision-making. The, the problem of having to boil down events with hindsight into palatable portions is that it it'll obviously create some distortions. We're aware of them, but it, it's still nonetheless challenging to overcome. Governments are they're often left presented uh, as policy actors and judged by outputs. Uh, instead, they were equally policy arenas wherein outputs were, outputs, pardon me, were negotiated. And as far as these outputs go, as the Italians say, between saying and doing lies to see. Uh, there were also tremendous amount of simply beyond their ability to control and the lessons which emerge paints a picture uh, somewhat akin to being uh, in a canoe on a river. Meaning you don't get much say about the river or its course, and for the most part, you're limited to trying to chart your course down it and navigating the rabbit, rapids. Um, all the decisions making was compelled to operate along pretty accelerated lines without the luxury of measured consideration. You, you know, you can't steer a ship that isn't moving, and so they were therefore forced to therefore forced to crack on, as it were. And uh, in in that experience, you see the way some of these far off considerations conflict with each other and they find themselves, you know, fighting themselves. I think that's some of what emerges from the book, particularly if you look at how many chapters deal with local conflicts, uh, irregular and guerrilla forces, such as my own Bobby's, Yakov's, or even by extension, Federico's on Italian forces after the Italian surrender or, or likewise Henry's chapter on Finland. It really hammers home some of these points as well as the unenviable choices based and the, you know, the unwelcome results that emerge from those choices. And this mm -hmm. last point in particular, you know, that particularly holds true for my look at uh, Yugoslavia. What misconceptions about the history of the Second World War does this study attempt to challenge and correct? Why do these misconceptions exist and persist? The main thing we're trying to do is with add some depth more than challenge anything. It's not so much a correction as an addition. Um, there are a lot more holes in our understanding of this conflict than I think we admit, or for that matter, we're even really aware of. There is a tendency, not un, a not difficult to understand tendency to be drawn towards these centers of gravity, be it geographically or uh, in the abstract with regards to high-level policy outputs, major military or political figures, that sort of thing. It, it's natural. It's an understandable phenomenon, but it is somewhat superficial even at the depth it has been studied in, in the context of the entire war. And it's it's also a disservice to those who, who lived through it, as well as ourselves, because we have left a lot of really valuable depth and understanding on the table. There is a very real, tangible, lasting legacy from these conflicts. I use the term, I use it plural intentionally. And uh, we, we've been dealing with them ever since. There is There are lessons in these pursuits that we, we all believed to be incredibly valuable to us today, all, all of our, my contributors and myself. And I, I mean, we've all dedicated our lives to these fields of study in the hope of aiding in some small way to achieving a better understanding. And as to why these misconceptions persist, it's a difficult question. And the answer is probably quite multifaceted. Some of it's that gravitational pull I allude to towards a more high profile, the sensational. There, there's other factors at play as well. There's 
likely a sense of having been so heavily invested into research on the subject for so long, despite it being somewhat limited uh, from our perspective, that that there the subject is some there's a sense that somehow the subject is done, the book is closed. The level of attention that's received is, I think, prompted some not totally without justification, particularly in academic, to have some some fatigue, which has ultimately, I think in some cases, unfortunately, turned into resentment in some corners uh, towards a continued focus on it. And this is unfortunately, you know, rather, wrong, wrong-headed, and I think it's rooted in some ignorance of, of what it, it still has to offer. There, there really is a real and lasting legacy from this war that we continue to confront, be it socially, culturally, geopolitically, you know, take your pick. There's also, I think, a misguided belief that because this is a war that it's all just military, uh, which I think neglects how much groundbreaking social, political, intelligence, international relations work is still being done by scholars on the subject, which again, has very tangible lessons for today. Uh, there's also, I suppose, the internet and the advent of the sort of celebrity academic driven, uh, accessible history, you know, ruled by clicks, not, not to slag those people who are bringing it to wider audiences, but it, it hasn't really helped with pulling away from the continued focus on the sensational center of gravity as much as some of us would like to see. Although, you know, in turn, the internet, to be fair, you know, example, for example, resources like yours are equally responsible for breaking past those standards. But at any rate, I think that these misconceptions persist because of some unwillingness or disinterest in continuing to pull at the threads, which are, you know, they're, they're very messy and complex and the answers aren't always very satisfactory. And, but to not do that is a failure. To put it mildly, it's a major disservice to those who endured it and suffered the legacy, never mind ourselves and the wisdom we forgo. With that said, I, I do sense that the tide may be at a point of beginning to turn on this front. Um, certainly, I hope that's the case. What do the forgotten conflicts of World War II teach us about technology during World War II? Uh, let's see. One of the reasons, one of the reasons to study the Second World War so intensely and advocate for its its teaching is, is related to actually the question of technology, I suppose. Um, arguably, the Second World War could be characterized as the first truly modern war in contemporary terms. Uh, I say sort of hesitantly. What I mean by that is that we have wireless real-time communication, aerial reconnaissance, air power, long-range weapons. The scale and speed has certainly evolved, but the components are all pretty much there in my view. And it, it holds everything from small conflicts to major ones, from ethnic, political, to religious, or classifieds, and, and it provides a lot of critical lessons for today. Um, I say this to preface, to, to preface my answer, because I think what I'm driving at is these chapters help us see the role that technology that we now take for granted was unrolled and altered the battle space forever. It provided a new means of warfare, which we still operate from it. It teaches us something as small as an airplane in a landing strip on some mountain or carved out of some jungle can totally alter the landscape of a war, a region, and with it, its people. What does this study teach us about air power and air warfare during World War II? It's a good question to follow off the technology one. Um, I do suspect my answer might be a little less than fulsome simply because it's not an area in which I'm an expert. 
However, what I can say is that it's worth considering that this, again, was the first war where air power played, you know, a central role. Yes, it, it existed in the First World War, but by the second, it was a critical institutionalized force, which had advanced to a technological level to provide reach never before possible. This altered how the war was fought, fought pardon me, and the reach it had. Um, one chapter that addresses this directly is is Oliver's concerning the Indian Ocean Front, where wherein he describes places that had you know, never seen airplanes or maybe only once in a while, profoundly altered by the war and airfields built, supplies brought in so that, you know, by the war's end, their entire society economy had been completely restructured in response to this new reality. And likewise, in every chapter concerning irregular warfare and guerrillas, such as my own, we see that the type of institutionalized modern clandestine warfare and related commando operations, such as that, which is associated with the special operations executive, the Office of Strategic Services were in no small part made possible as well as successful as they were because of the role air power could play. You know, it became possible to to drop weapons to rebels on the side of a mountain well inside of occupied territory. And uh, it's I, I'd suppose that would be my answer as someone who, again, isn't really an expert per se on air power. What does this volume teach us about nationalism during World War II? One of one of the, the the realities, I suppose, that comes along with viewing the war as uh, the mosaic of overlapping conflicts is that things get rewardingly complicated. <laughs> we see layers upon layers of conflicted forces caught up in the mix, and one is a political dimension of fascism, liberal democracy, and communism all competing against each other. Even if, in the last you know case, the they were allies, Cold War competition was still there. Adding to this, we also you know have layers of class, religion, and indeed nationalism. Here I would say it again at the risk of, you know, at the risk of self-aggrandizing, I'd, I'd point to my chapter as the one that has a lot to offer on the subject of nationalism and as well as by extension, its interaction with the other forces I've mentioned like politics, but also, also ethnicity and religion. And uh, what we see from these examinations is the force of nationalism and the competitions with which existed within it or with it, uh, depending on your view, could serve to deeply impact how the war was was perceived and pursued. You know, Yugoslav nationalism was tied up with ethnicity and the political battle playing out over the Serbian Royal Yugoslav Army and the homeland, uh, as they called themselves, uh, Mihailovic's Chetnik forces. Uh, the reality was deeply tied to pre-war ethnic tensions in the young young state, Yugoslav state, and the Serbian monarchy's governments. Ethnicity became inseparable from political battles. Uh, the questions of Yugoslav and, and the questions of Yugoslav's future were, were likewise tied up with the, the you know the communist partisans political program uh, which emphasized a, a singular unified Yugoslavia or Yugoslav identity with space for all ethnicities created a unifying nationalist as well as political ideology which was a large part of their success and I, I I would also point to Shun's chapter wherein we see an extremely similar situation play out in China, which was likewise facing a civil war predicated upon polit similar political questions uh, tied up in nationalism uh, in relation to the Japanese occupation. Or you could look at Henry's chapter on Finland, where the situation was in fact quite different in that nationalism and ethnic identity were very much a unifying force that served to aid the Finns in weathering the storms as they were very much battered amongst the the shoals of you know gross smacked politic the greater politics of the world and 
I suppose the short answer is what this volume teaches us about nationalism was it was a, a very complex and fluid issue, but one that absolutely essential driving force uh, you know, local uh, to local currents of thought and how they express themselves within the context of the larger war. Um, I don't think that there's anywhere the Allies or Axis operated where nationalism of, at the local level didn't come into serious consideration with regards to what they were trying to accomplish. What does the failure to remember these forgotten conflicts of World War II teach us about the state of World War II education in our world and society? I, I find myself a little apprehensive about going so far as to say failure. Certainly, we, we haven't done well uh, at remembering it, but I, I would add the word yet mm-hmm. um, to that. We have to appreciate it from a historiographical perspective. This is actually a pretty young subject, believe it or not. We're just sort of getting to a, a stage where the bigger points are, are sort of nailed down and we, we've come to a place with enough distance to, to do so free from some of the immediate political and social, uh, I don't want to call it baggage, but I guess we'll call it baggage that, that we were you know, quite naturally forced to contend with. Um, so I think the field is is just starting to wake to these these gaps, and I'm actually really excited to see the next generation of scholarship on the subject. What I'm concerned about is that the current academic climate that these scholars are that within the pardon me within the current academic climate that these scholars are are supported and given opportunities to pursue these incredibly important uh, avenues of research. I think that'll determine what it'll be said of the state of the Second World War education in our world and society in the years to come. As, as for what it says right now, there is there is hope that we may very well see a renaissance in the field in the new, near future. So I, I don't know that we've failed. We just still have a lot more work to do. How does your research advance our understanding of the geopolitical interests of the British Empire during the Second World War? This question, you know, this obviously doesn't pertain to every chapter directly, but it certainly does to mine. So I, I, I can understand why it, you would ask me, uh, I, I would, what I would say here is most of what I'm going to say here is probably actually true of other powers as well. Um, what I see that emerges with the British is that, uh, there's, we're witnessing a modern global power fighting as such contradictorily because of what we would see as something maybe less than modern, uh, I either their imperial networks, um, the British approach to war was, you know, very much shaped by uh, historical and imperial experience and, and contending with global networks and their their eye towards naval capacity and maritime logistics is why you know the Mediterranean played so heavily in their considerations and why they pushed back against the Americans in the early years of the war uh, when the Americans wanted to rush into France, uh, somewhat if not totally ignorant of what the British were trying to get across. Um, this this shaped their strategic priorities as well as methodology towards securing these priorities. It was also likely largely responsible for allied successes. The The imperial interests were, were both strategic as well as ideal-based and resource-based uh, in nature, and they, they therefore transferred over to practical military considerations pretty well. Uh, in this regard, I think my own research in the Yugoslavia holds the potential to advance our understanding of how these these British interests were defined, discussed, and pursued, uh, acting as a case study, as it were. 
Um, this also uh, takes on an additional dimension towards the end of the war with the emergence of Soviet competition as the British began to consider, define, and advance the preservation of, of certain post-war geopolitical interests, which has tremendous bearing on the 20th century and the legacy that, again, you know, that we're, this is why I say we're something that still, we're still very much dealing with. How does this volume advance our understanding of intelligence and espionage during World War II? Uh, I would say the intelligence and espionage question breaks down into a couple areas in the book. One would one would probably be the diplomatic efforts we see, for example, in, by Japan and, and South America, which is described in, in Pedro's chapter, as as well as for that matter, uh, the fifth column issues on the British home front, highlighted in Robert's chapter. Uh, the other side would be you know the clandestine stuff associated associated with resistance, such as Bobby. Yakov, Shun, and my own chapter. Uh, the volume, this volume, I, uh, I think it aids in expanding the view of what falls under the title and challenges one to, you know, the, the, the title of intelligence and espionage. It challenges one to cast a wider net and thinking about these things. And, and what comes across from these chapters, I, I think, on the subject is first and foremost that these terms have, again, a, a rather wide definition, which I think is a really healthy attitude to have towards approaching the subjects. Beyond that, I think it also speaks to some of the fluidity of these forces, uh, the constraints that come with having to reach outside your own organization, in some cases, to, to these third parties with their own agendas to get it to engage on on these fronts, as well as the inability to always respond as one would, would like, as we see, for example, with the Brits in Yugoslavia. But uh, I think the the understanding of it that comes across from the chapter is, is just how vast complex, challenging, and impactive uh, these uh, these forces could be. How did you meet the contributors to this volume? What was your relationship like during the preparation process? Uh, it's funny, uh, you know, before the interview we were talking about this, I, I honestly had no idea how lucky I was at first. Uh, at first. <laughs> I'd never taken on a project like this before, and I guess my ignorance was a blessing. I I'd contributed to other volumes, but never initiated and oversaw one on my own. Uh, and, you know, once I realized this was something worth doing, I simply put out a call on HNET and started getting emails. And I had some idea about how to approach a publisher. And, and I got some guidance from Stuart Webb at Defense Report, where I am, who acted as something of a mentor to me. Uh, that's it. It was all actually quite easy and smooth. Uh, Robert Langham over at Rutledge was very supportive. I know there's there's probably academics right now who hate me for saying that, but at the, the, not not that Rutledge was supportive, but that it was so easy. Uh, at, at the time, I just figured that's how it went for everyone. But it wasn't until later, having developed more experience and spoken to others, I discovered just how fortunate I'd been. And that really comes down to the contributors I worked with. I, I can't overstate how unbelievably lucky I was to end up with the group of people I did. They were just incredibly supportive people. They're very fortunate to, to know them. They were all just really switched on, super passionate about the project. Also, really, really supportive of the idea driving it. And uh, they just, they got it. And they, they also really appreciated everybody else's contributions. And, you know, additionally, they're all just incredibly accomplished in their respective fields. And that what made the book not just possible, but as strong as it is. I, I reread the book again in preparation for the interview. And I was I was taken aback by just how solid their chapters are. Um, you know, in contrast, I, I was saying to you before, 
my Yugoslav chapter, you know, it kind of grates on me because I'd written it when I was starting my PhD and now having finished the thesis and everything, I'm a little frustrated uh, uh, that my chapter doesn't hold up as well as I, to theirs as, or, or as much as I would like, which I'm sure is natural for anyone who goes through a PhD pro- process. They come away with so much more depth that they look back at their earlier stuff and say, well, no, oh my. Um, that's why I'm really looking forward to having an opportunity to really flesh out the subject in a way that really hasn't been with publishing the PhD in the future. What new perspectives does this volume offer regarding the role of ports in geostrategy during World War II? Uh, well, on the macro level, you know, I, I'd point to Oliver's examination of the Indian Ocean again concerning the critical role ports play in any role or any war, pardon me. <laughs> Uh, but particularly global wars such as this, where, you know, as I've been discussing, British imperial lines of logistics were critical to the Allied war effort, for example. Now, alternatively, you know, from the macro level of Oliver's examination of the Indian Ocean, you could look at Allied supply to Tito's partisans across the Adriatic uh, that was able to provide a, you know, a scale that uh, unavailable by airdrops alone, which you know, likewise points to the role that, that ports or more generally, the naval dimension can play in geostrategy. Well, the short answer is it was it was incredibly important to, to understate it. Uh, and sometimes it, it can be somewhat lost in the noise. It's uh, it's not that we fail to appreciate the rule, but it's it's worth reinforcing that this was a major driver of geostrategy, particularly the first few years of the war, which is why there was so much focus on the Mediterranean, Middle East, Africa. I think that in terms of this particular volume, it's... A question of re- reinforcing two points. The first being the global reach this impact had uh, locally, as Oliver points out. And secondly, as I alluded to, the micro level always uh, ways that uh, this this served to have huge impacts on on over what was done, where, and the fallout from it. The massive scale of supply to Tito, for example, considerably altered landscape and contributed to the uh, political realities of the region faced in the later stages of the war and afterwards. And that really just came down to geography and and maritime uh, accessibility. In addition to the forgotten fronts of World War II presented in this volume, are there any other important conflicts during the Second World War that have been forgotten but which could not fit in this book? Can you address any other forgotten fronts during World War II in East and Southeast Asia in the Middle East, in Africa, in the Indian subcontinent, in Latin America, or in Europe? There, I would suspect, many, many more. Uh, I think what we've only just presented a tiny sample of what's available. You know, For example, you look at Oliver's chapter in the Indian Ocean, or Pedro's Concerning South America, or Disu and Rahim's on British recruitment strategies in Nigeria, it becomes a Parent, it became painfully apparent that there are numerous fields of inquiry from just their areas that would require years of dedicated research. Each of them, in covering their area of study, highlighting their particular region, have pointed to on their own. They've already pointed to con- to considerable number of new avenues of research that demand attention. You know, Oliver points out that his treatment of French experiences in the Western Indian Ocean has not addressed Arabia, the Persian Gulf several other areas that would no doubt prove compelling and rewarding. And I think, you know, Disu and, and, and Rahim's have, have opened up a very wide area for research into military, political, and social history concerning Central, East, and West Africa. Uh, I would personally love to read more about what has been hinted at 
by, for example, Federico and Schoen and Bobby's chapter on the experiences, you know, amongst, the, for example, the Italians post-surrender or those, those groups in China and Burma, respectfully, uh, um, that, that take their approaches with regard to local experiences and, you know, see them further applied into areas like, I, I would like to see more about Persia, Arabia, the Caucasus, as an example. I would love to, I'm sure that there's quite a bit out there on India, but I, I really like to see more all the same. How are the conflicts presented in this volume remembered in the specific countries where they occurred? What can be learned from local historiography and local discourse? I think this is, this is one of the uh, implicit lessons that come out of, I would think, probably every chapter which drives the book's narrative. Uh, one doesn't really need to look at even far off on underexplored places to see the different ways these conflicts are remembered. One example that resonates with me is Robert's chapter concerning the fifth column concerns on the British home front. You know, for those who are familiar with, you know, post-war British culture, particularly, you know, popular culture, film and television, which, you know, as a Canadian, I was raised on it. Uh, one can really readily see the, the lasting legacy of those forces upon British culture, thinking, and the lenses through which the British remember the war. I'd also, you know, you see, for example, you could look at Yakov's discussion of how partisan warfare in the Baltics is remembered. And we see the conflict between memory and reality being tied to politics and myth building. Pedro's chapter on Japanese diplomatic efforts in South America is yet another example. Likewise, we see from Oliver's chapter the profound social impacts the war had for those living within the Indian Ocean Theater. However, yeah. the one that uh, the most important chapters, I think, on this front is likely Catherine's uh, concerning post-war efforts to to find these children who had been kidnapped by the Nazis. The, even when we look to Europe, we get a really sen real sense of the different ways those within the same country experienced and viewed the war. And uh, this in itself speaks to the point that you know, this was not a singular war, but instead a mosaic of overlapping conflicts and experiences. And it's a critical point that needs to be at the forefront of looking at at this subject, not simply because of honoring different experiences, but because it gives us multiple avenues towards viewing, you know, events, questions, what have you, which presents a more holistic understanding and a larger and therefore more valuable uh, set of lessons. Um, so how these conflicts are remembered specific question, uh, in specific countries is, is a challenging question because in some cases it's, there's more than one way it's remembered. But, um, I would say that particularly in these, these forgotten fronts, if we can call them that, it, the memory is very raw, very real, and has very serious long-lasting legacy that we should do a better job of paying service to. In your own article in the volume, which is entitled From Resistance to Revolution and deals with occupied Yugoslavia during the Second World War, you devote a great deal of attention to the friction and tension between General Draza Mihailovich and Josef Broz Tito. Can you elaborate on the tensions between them and the frictions that occurred? I, I see you, you've practiced your pronunciation. I'm impressed. Um, the, the friction, the tension between them is really interesting because there's a, there's a quite a bit of complexity to it. Um, part of it is that Mihailovich saw himself as, as a, a Yugoslav, uh, Royal army officer. He saw himself as a continuation of the military post-occupation. 
Um, he retreated into the mountains and broke back down into uh, what would uh, basically be the traditional uh, Chetnik groups. Uh, they were almost entirely Serbian. So that's where the, the ethnic di ten, uh, division, or sorry, not division, but ethnic dimension, pardon me, comes from. Uh, Tito, on the other hand, you know, he uh, he was a communist. And so he had come from a different, he comes at it from a different angle, uh, wherein, you know, ethnicity is a, to take a backseat to political ideology, which attracted a wider group of people. There's also a divide between the urban laborers and industrial centers that were tracked towards Tito and the communist organization and organized labor. Whereas Mihailovic relied more on the Serbian peasants. So there's some friction there. There's also more fundamentally, you know, uh, Ito was looking to overthrow, not re not save everything that had been lost in the occupation. He wanted to, he didn't want to see the reestablishment of a uh, monarchy. He wanted to see a communist state. Uh, there's also tensions in how they pursued things. Because of Tito's goals, reprisals were something that weren't viewed in the same light as Mihailovic, who saw himself as the guardian of the Yugoslav state and had a, uh, particularly in reaction to the early Ustashi massacres, um, rightfully felt that his, the Serbian people were facing a genocide, something that often is overlooked. And as a result, he felt his first duty was to preserve the people and protect them from these reprisals. Whereas Tito, for his part, saw it as advancing his cause of breaking down traditional networks, as well as providing a new cadre of recruits. So there's quite a bit of friction for a number of reasons that come down to things as simple as how they want to pursue the conflict to more profound issues of why they were pursuing it. Can you tell us about Prince Regent Paul of Yugoslavia's relations with the Axis? Prince Regent Paul was the king's uncle, I believe, uh, and he was essentially running Yugoslavia. It was a regency council, but it was him uh, before the war. And he found himself in a very unenviable position. Yugoslavia was a very young country, born out of the First World War. It had a tremendous amount of ethnic and political tension. They'd seen uh, more than one assassination. They'd seen uh, a dictatorship. There is, there's a lot of political upheaval. And he found himself in a position where he was wary of what the war could bring to his country and how it would destabilize it. So he found himself trying to walk a very fine line, which ended up just turning into Havering. His relation with the Axis was was quite difficult because Prince Paul was British educated. Uh, I think the vast majority of the, the Yugoslav population, particularly the Serbs, leaned towards the Allies quite heavily, uh, more the French than the British, but were very sympathetic to the Allied cause. I don't think they liked the Axis, but for a number of reasons, the the Axis, particularly Germany, was their, their largest trading partner, uh, d dominated their economy. Uh, maybe not their largest, but it was they were they had a profound economic influence. Um, they also had to deal with Italian territorial ambitions in Yugoslavia. So he was he was trying to guard against 
those territorial ambitions or his economy being crushed while also trying to navigate uh, public sentiment. And so he kept trying to to avoid, he had a very strong avoidance strategy that ultimately paralyzed him from taking action when the time came. And he just sort of, by degrees, eventually sort of degraded to the point where he signed the pact in the hope of avoiding the very things that he ended up unleashing. He did attempt to modify the pact. He didn't want to be involved with the war. And I think he he ended up gaining a clause that they wouldn't use Yugoslav territory to transport troops. But ultimately he he just uh he was unable to act. And the the result was that he by stages fell into the Axis orbit and uh that was not acceptable to the Yugoslav people who immediately to their credit revolted on mass. It was a completely bloodless coup and it was accomplished in a couple of hours. Can you comment on Yugoslavia's place in allied debates about global and regional strategy? Yeah, it's really interesting is um Yugoslavia, the reason I'm so drawn to the subject is that it finds itself somewhat on the periphery or the crossroads of a few different areas. As as I, I think I mentioned earlier, it was under the the command of the Middle East in Cairo, even though it's European, uh, which says, I think, uh, quite a bit about it. Um, it. It's interesting because it had sat somewhat peripherally and particularly uh, my, my strongest area of study is British policy. So I'm going to speak from the British lens here, but it had sat on the Brit- the periphery of British considerations in the interwar period. But found very quickly came to play an incredibly significant role um, early in the war when they were trying to avoid the war spreading to the Balkans just because of its military potential and the territory, its resources, uh, its ability to like shore up a Balkan block, first neutral and then like a anti-axis Balkan block. But uh, it, it, it was something that at various moments throughout the war, Yugoslavia came forward and had profound impact in really unexpected ways on larger uh allied policy discussions like you you'd be having a great debate about uh, a, a greater debate about mediterranean strategy and all of a sudden you know, little yugoslavia as, as it was you know sometimes thought of would come forward and their resistance would be of critical importance to to mediterranean operations or something going on there would suddenly have to would it would compel the british to recast their entire thinking on on a subject. So the, the role is actually surprisingly profound, uh, particularly when you're talking about Mediterranean strategy. And it's it's somewhat surprising that as a result, it hasn't gotten more attention. When I started reading about it and researching this, I, would, I, I couldn't believe that what I was reading wasn't something that you come across more generally. When you read Mediterranean strategy, it's mostly North Africa and Italy. Uh, and I was, I was, somewhat shocked because the the short answer is it has a profound impact at many different points it came roaring forward to alter policy and create considerable tension between the allies too i might add uh between not just the the soviets and the west but between the us the british and soviets who all have very different views of yugoslavia so it was something of a, a thorn in the side uh, i say that with with all due respect who was sloboda don jovanovic can you tell us about him and his importance uh so Yugoslav government in exile went through five prime ministers during the war. It was not exactly the picture of stability. Uh, 
largely because of some of the problems I had, uh, had mentioned before. He was the second of, of the prime ministers. And what's really important about him is when he came into power, he tried to centralize authority within the military. Uh, specifically, what that means is uh, he wanted to centralize it within Serbian circles. And uh, one of the results of this was that he immediately began mucking about with the command in of the Yugoslav forces in Cairo, which led to, uh, it's a subject that not a lot of people know about, but it, the Cairo mutiny, wherein the Yugoslav forces mutinied against their own government's orders. And it led to a pretty uh, intense confrontation between Auchinlecht in Cairo and the foreign office in London. Um, it's something that I would encourage people to read about. Uh, it, it's too much to talk about here, but his importance is that he precipitated what was to have quite a bit of knock-on effect. It it altered relations between Cairo and London, between the foreign office and the military, and as well the special operations executives, particularly SOE Cairo, which is what that Cairo was one of their headquarters, um, got caught up in it. And afterward, SOE Cairo was never really looked upon the same way as by the foreign office who, uh, for a reason I'm, I still struggle with, seem to view as part of the reason for the uh, conflict. What new information and insights does your research reveal regarding Prime Minister Simovic of Yugoslavia? Uh, I don't know if I'd necessarily reveal anything new about him, uh, but what my research does sort of get across is that uh, the Yugoslav government in exile was a rather unreliable ally. Uh, that may not be the fair way to put it, but the British didn't look on them in the way that some previous works have, have uh, characterized it as. Uh, Sinovich was uh, the chief of general staff of the Yugoslav Royal Army. Uh, he was firmly against capitulation. He was seen as like a, a really good choice uh, by the British. In fact, Eden was so upset that uh, by his removal and replacement with uh, jo uh, Jovanovic, that he actually contemplated inter interfering directly with with it. It was it was a, a major deal, and one of the reasons for that is he was seen as having the experience as well as the disposition. He was someone who who really did strive to bridge some of the political and ethnic divides. His his cabinet could, I suppose, you might use Churchill's war cabinet as an example to some degree, but um, all he managed to do was unite all of them in their dislike of him because of uh, you know a good compromise leaves everybody with something to be unhappy about, and that ultimately uh, brought him down, unfortunately. I As to whether they would have been better off or not, it's tough to say, but he was the guy the British liked. How does your article shed new light on King Peter of Yugoslavia's conduct during the Second World War. The article itself versus my research, it's 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 kind of tough for me to separate the two. I'd have to really go back and look at the chapter and exactly what it says. But King um, Peter was, you know, he was a young young man. He was only eighteen, and uh, so his role was unfortunately, you know, it was quite quite a daunting task for someone of that age. He. He found himself in a pretty unenviable position where he was trying to 
get a handle on a lot of these different forces. And the British were convinced, and I, I think without not without reason, to think he could have served as a uniting force for the Yugoslavs, somewhere to a point to rally behind. But um, there are various number of reasons that are, I think, probably more to get than I could get into here. It didn't end up working out that way. And uh, he, like many others, were were caught up in events and they sort of consumed him. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us a bit where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? Uh, I, um, unfortunately, I, I, I largely went dark for quite a while, uh, which I think most people will sympathize with because I started actually doing the, the, the writing part of the PhD, the researching and writing. I, I would put out a few articles on the science report, but at some point I, I basically had to move into the archives over in the UK and then I had to deal with what I'd pulled out of the archives and then I had to write the PhD. So that, that's where the bulk of my time since this has been released has been. Um, I, I was awarded the PhD in, in March officially. Um, and since then my, my primary focus has been on finding employment, you know, a teaching position, ideally at a university. So if there's, you know, anyone listening out there, historian will travel, uh, the jobs, the job hunt aside, I'm going to be releasing my PhD thesis as a manuscript. It's currently under consideration with a couple of university presses. Um, I can't really say who's going to end up publishing it, but I do suspect I'll be signing a contract in the near future. And my hope is that it'll be forthcoming within the next uh, 24 months. Uh, the working title at the moment is Royalists and Revolutionaries, Yugoslavia and the British War in the Mediterranean. Amazing. I'm so happy for you. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I can't wait for everything to work out regarding that. I, I absolutely wish you the very, very best. I appreciate that. I'm I'm really looking forward to having the opportunity to uh, get what is in my head out to other people besides my you know my my thesis supervisor and my my thesis examiners. Uh, I I it's tough to sit here and just say it, but I I think I've I've profoundly altered how we think and talk about that. I think I've done I've I think I've accomplished quite a bit of really admirable research. Not to not to sound arrogant, I I, I don't. Think that I'm going to be the authority on Yugoslavia going forward, but I do think I, I've, I've added something of value, and I, I really look forward to, to getting it beyond my own head. Terrific. I wish you the very, very best. Thank you very much. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Chris Murray. He is Senior Analyst and Associate Editor at Defense Report. We have been discussing his newly edited and published volume, Unknown Conflicts of the Second World War, Forgotten Fronts, published in New York by Routledge Publishers, 2019.